0: Hey, May 40 here, and it looks like uh, Tucker Carlson is going to team up with Elon Musk. So that announcement just uh, dropped in the past hour. Let's hear from Tucker.
1: Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies, but most of the time that's not exactly right. Much of what you see on television or read the New York Times is in fact true in the literal sense. You could pass one of the media's own fact checks. Lawyers would be willing to sign off on it. In fact, they may have. But that doesn't make it true. It's not true. At the most basic level, the news you consume is a lie. A lie of the stealthiest and most insidious kind. Facts have been withheld on purpose, along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. How does that work? Let's see. If I tell you that a man has been unjustly arrested for armed robbery, that is not, strictly speaking, a lie. He may have been framed. At this point, there's been no trial, so no one can really say. But if I don't mention the fact that the same man has been arrested for the same crime six times before, am I really informing you? No, I'm not. I'm misleading you. And that's what the news media are doing in every story that matters, every day of the week, every week of the year. What's it like to work in a system like that? After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits, and you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops, Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things, too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon.
2: Okay, this is exciting. Some big breaking news. Tucker Carlson is returning to the airwaves, but he's returning on Twitter uh, in an interesting turn of events that comes in some big legal drama. Before we play you the video, we got to explain the context. One of the reasons that he is relaunching his show on Twitter, the news just broke, let's go and put it up there on the screen. Tucker Carlson is now accusing Fox News of fraud and a contract breach. So what does that mean? The new letter sent by Tucker Carlson and his team is demanding legal action, saying that Fox News violated the terms of Tucker Carlson's contract, then arguing that the non-compete provision in his contract is no longer valid freeing him to now launch his own competing show or media enterprise. He he announced uh, his show will be coming to Twitter and the Twitter platform exclusively, we believe. Currently, uh, there is some speculation that the Twitter move would technically violate the Carlson contract, but the lawyers say that Fox actually is the one who breached the contract first. So, for example, the letter was sent by Brian Friedman to Fox's uh, lawyer and to their PR people and also Rupert Murdoch himself. They say that Fox executives... um, specifically have, quote, made material representations or promises to Carlson that were intentionally broken constituting fraud. Also, they allege that Fox actually broke their agreement with Carlson to not leak his private communications to the media and to not use his private messages, quote, to take any adverse employment action against him. Basically, they are pointing to the leaked text messages from the redacted ones that only Fox is in possession of to the mainstream media as well as multiple behind-the-scenes videos that clearly were leaked by somebody um, with uh, with knowledge or, I guess, access to the Fox archives. I guess, you know, wonder who that would be. So what they say is that they believe that the representations by the Fox executives amount to enough of a breach of contract, allowing him then to come in and to launch his show on Twitter. The launch is what happened just now, uh, a couple of moments ago. We're going to go ahead and play the full video for you, which includes a denouncement of the mainstream media and an explanation of why Tucker is
1: relaunching a show on Twitter specifically. Let's get to it. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news, we bring some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon.
2: Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Uh, obviously, you know, it's pretty crazy that this is all in the context of a major lawsuit. But second, uh, let's just talk about this in the vacuum on Twitter itself. Uh, fascinating move to launch just on Twitter for a number of reasons. I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but uh, you know, traditionally, if you're somebody like who wants a long form podcast or a YouTube show, specifically a visual medium, you almost certainly would go to some sort of a streaming platform, which is built kind of with that infrastructure. Twitter video is not built really for this at all. So I'm very curious to see if this is rolled maybe into the Twitter blue program or if they include in you know, a long form uh, content, playback speed, you know, all these other things that you would never think about for long form uh, media distribution and consumption. Uh, uh, we should remember that the history of long-form video on Twitter is, is not good. Um, outside of Periscope and live streaming, AM2DM was a BuzzFeed news uh, morning show concept, which horrifically failed um, on Twitter. This was uh, almost you know, several years ago, uh, whenever it shut, shut down. It's a big gamble not to go with the traditional route of podcasting and of YouTube. Presumptively, though, it's possible um, that this was you know maybe the easiest way they thought that they wouldn't violate as much of the terms of the contract rather than going fresh out the gate with YouTube um, and with podcasts. It's also possible. Elon cut him a fat check, uh, basically becoming a publisher himself, being like, hey, you know, I've got all the money in the world. I stand for free speech. Fox fired you for X, Y, and Z. I'll hire you and you can uh, report exclusively on my platform. That's pretty interesting. Now, in the context of uh, what I think about all this, and again, I have not spoken to him about this literally at all, so I have no inside knowledge. Uh, what I am curious to see is the level of reach that this will maintain, because I think that this does accomplish something that I know was important to him, and I think important for kind of his role in the GOP and media landscape is Twitter is where the elite conversation happens, right? So if he is exclusively on Twitter, then people who are reacting to his clips can do so on Twitter. Also All the Republican lawmakers can react on Twitter because that is so key to where all the elites hang out. And it's actually kind of the perfect place where if you're going to be having elites on Twitter, then it's also a great time uh, to ridicule said elites on Twitter, as you will do very likely on his show. Um, That then raises the question of his cultural relevance, where... I think this does square the circle somewhat in that way just because it will be on that central platform and of course the reach um, will be massive i mean already i think within i think 10 minutes of him posting the video i almost had over a million views um that were included on the video now of course i am not comparing cable news viewers um to twitter viewers which is very very different they only have to watch for two seconds you know e- even youtube views are mo- frankly in my opinion more comparable but even then of course they're slightly different you know all of these things that said um very clearly this will be able to reach a younger demographic and it's literally unlimited appeal and also you can watch presumably um, on demand on twitter at any point that you would want to uh this may also prelude some changes to the overall Twitter platform. So anyways, uh, it's a crazy development. And honestly, it's a gamble. It's a gamble uh, to, to to go straight onto Twitter. I personally, I would have gone a much more traditional route YouTube and podcasts if that's uh, what we do. Uh, but anyways, uh, lots to be said here.
0: Second, Kelly here.
2: Is
3: it Fox? Fox seems too smart to think this is bad for Tucker. But I they seem too smart to fire their number one star too, and they did that. So here's the latest post on Media Matters that I believe is meant to ruin Tucker, I guess. It's unclear what he's talking about. Just so you know, I don't know it any better than you do. He's clearly lamenting some liberal at fox news who may have pronouns in their bio watch
1: i was like she's got a lot of liberals working over there and you know they see this as work and we're the main force on the other side and like that's crazy if you've got pronouns in your twitter bio you shouldn't work here because we can't trust you because you're on the other side and she goes, well who and i said i'm not going to name names because i don't know who did it and i'm definitely not going to cast dispersions on someone unfairly just because you're liberal doesn't mean you did this it doesn't mean you shouldn't work here and roger would never put up with this shit why would you do that do, do you know what i mean they see this as war. It's like, I'm not that. I'm an actual liberal. Like, I'm totally fine being like, our makeup artist is like a screaming lefty. Um, no, but I'm not that way. You know, but they are that way. And I said, I'm not ashamed of anything I said.
4: You now look like you recently had COVID. I you look fresh face, and healthy. But do you know what I
1: mean, Justin? I didn't know it. If, if you've got, like, that that horrible guy who was just horrible, who was Judge Jeanine's uh, guy, I couldn't, yeah, that guy. is like a screaming left-wing lunatic. Why does he work here? What? He totally dicked over his anger, and then we expect he's not going to dick over the network. Like, I don't have specific information on it, but I would – it's just – yeah, it's crazy. I,
3: you're feeling angry, aren't you? You're feeling pissed off at Tucker for saying somebody who's so left and woke – that's really what he's objecting to, somebody who's woke – shouldn't be working for a show like his or, you know, the Fox News channel. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Like, it's not – he's not saying you can't work at Fox. That would be illegal to make a firing or a hiring decision based on that, though he's not in that position uh, to hire and fire. Um but he's basically saying, why would you work here? This is not the ideological place for you. You're not. going to be unhappy. My whole life is spent railing against the woke. By the way, same. <laughs> it's not that you're unhirable. You could come work here if you're a trans person. However, you're going to have to be okay with where I stand on this issue. You're going to have to listen to it all day long. And then you better not get any ideas about taping me or running out and making a stand based on the thing you signed up to do. Still, your thoughts?
5: Yeah, that seems like a basic function of a workplace, right? You don't want to necessarily be fighting for everything you oppose. I know it would be very difficult for me to go to, let's say, uh, a trash heap like Media Matters and work there, um, right. mainly because I would question every day why I even existed. Um, but, I mean, I wouldn't want to be fighting to try to unfairly ruin people's livelihoods on the side of the argument that I like. What, what, what sense would that make? And, of course, if you go to Media Matters, you're not going to find lots of people who are on the conservative side of that arrangement, despite the fact that they seem to be indicating they're opposed to... Uh, to that uh, situation, right? Like, the fact that someone who's mega woke is going to go to Fox is probably just not the place that they're going to enjoy uh, their work and also the, their employer is not going to enjoy it. And, I, you know, I'm with you on this, Megan, and that, like, it seems so completely inept. It's hard to believe that Fox is involved in in these leaks. Uh, you know, uh, most of these leaks, I think, have come to the side of where you'd like Tucker Carlson more <laughs> after listening to them, mm-hmm. realizing that maybe he is the exact same person behind the scenes that he is in front of the camera, which is not always the case in the media, as we know. You know, I think... And yet, maybe, and
3: yet who el- who else would be leaking this? It's right. very clearly off of the Fox R-Dome system. This is, I worked there for many, many years, 13 years. Mm. You have an internal system. This is how they caught, remember the woman I interviewed her who leaked the tape of Amy Robach. She cut the tape, yeah. she didn't leak the tape, of Amy Robach saying, I had the Epstein story years ago. They buried it. And you could look at the system and figure out who cut it. You, the system shows you everything. You have to log in with your ID number. So there's no question that this was a Fox person and they must know who the person is. Now the real question is, who did that person do it for? And then who who was in charge of the clips after they were cut? I know, I've espoused my beliefs based on my own dealings with Fox. Um, and the, and the other thing is, not only do I believe it was obviously you know Fox, and I have said publicly, I think it was Irina Briganti who runs comms, who's got a long history of attacking talent. But let's look at, I'll put this one to you, Dave. Let's look at the first New York Times article that released the Dominion texts that Tucker had uh, been involved in that had been redacted for the litigation. So only Fox and Dominion had access to those. So it was one of those parties. And it also included two tapes that would wind up on Media Matters of Tucker in, like this, on camera but off air, but being taped. Now, there's only one party that I just mentioned that would have access to both of those things, and it's not Dominion.
6: Yeah, no, look, I mean, it's a great point. And I feel like, you know, at, at this point, we'll probably know the Supreme Court leaker before we know whoever's, uh, you know, doing this leaking. Right. Um, but,
3: maybe you know, look get the, t- the Supreme Court marshal on the investigation I, of who's doing the Tucker leaks.
6: <laughs> could be the same person. I mean, maybe it's all Sonia or Who knows? Um, I should that. <laughs> um, yeah, You know, I think Stu makes a great point, though, of, about this leaking. And I think it's why we're all confused as to why anybody would think that this makes um, Tucker look bad is that. What Tucker has and what really made him special and the reason that, that he and Fox were able to create this unbelievably impactful um, TV show together is that he's authentic. I mean, anybody who's like sort of spent time with him, you know, I interviewed him for my book and it's some of the most insightful stuff that's that's in my book. Um, he is who he is. And that's kind of rare on TV. Uh, and, and Stu's right. I mean, this just shows it to you. It's it's absolutely baffling to me that anybody could think that this is damning at all. I mean, it's, it's innocuous. It's it, it's very strange. And, and, and it's unfortunate because, like I said, you know, what Fox and Tucker created together was something extremely special. Um, and, and it really is a shame to see it uh, end this way. I guess it's, you know, not not unheard of, but it's it's sad.
3: Well, but I mean, it's more pernicious than that because it's clearly an active campaign to destroy. And word out of Carlson's camp to me today uh, is they're extremely frustrated that Fox is clearly slow walking the negotiations to try to keep him under wraps as long as possible. They do not appear inclined to let him out of the non-compete at all. They're trying to shut everybody up with non-disparagement and non competition. Uh, requirements. So they wanted to be quiet. They wanted to be quiet about Fox. They wanted to be quiet professionally. Uh, that includes Fox, his executive producer, who they also canned um, for, with no explanation, right? This is a guy who's got a family to support too, others to support. And um, so they're gone. And, and Fox is not negotiating in good faith now as Tucker has been looking to his allies to step up the pressure on Fox. And I can tell you this, the pressure is working because we just got in Friday's numbers on the Fox News Channel and I've never seen anything so low. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. I've never seen numbers this low on Fox News, ever. And I joined Fox News in 2004 when they were being funded by the Christy Lane commercials. Okay, it was a, there were some lean days. Uh, we were still number one back then, but that didn't say much because we weren't getting a lot of eyeballs on the channel. Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay, Tucker's last week on the Fox News channel, his show averaged um, 3 million in the overall, and they averaged almost 400,000 in the demo, 25 to 54, 377,000 to be exact. On Friday, the APM show got, again, once again, he was averaging 3 million. It got 1.284. So we'll call it 1.3 million. From wow. 3 million down to 1.3 million. And in the demo, again, it's let's call it 3.8, was 377,000. So let's call it 380,000. They got 90,000, oh. 90, 90. I've never seen, you're getting to the point, if you go below 50, you get what we call slashies. Remember, Abby? We used to laugh at the Morning Joe crew because they get slashies every, every day. We're like, these people are so self-important, they have fucking slashies. <laughs> anyway, they're, they're looking at slashies potentially on the Fox News channel, prime time. I realize it's Friday, Fridays are never strong. Uh, I'll get you Tucker's ratings on his last Friday. They were, I think, triple this. But still, 90, no. Mm -mm. And by the way, they lost. They lost on Friday in the 8 p.m. to both MSNBC and CNN. You have to try hard to lose to CNN. The 9 and the 10 p.m. also lost to MSNBC. The 9 p.m. only went up to 100,000 in the demo. The 10 p.m. was back down to 94,000 in the demo. So what happens is they lose eight. They hemorrhage at 8, and then they never recover. The whole prime time is blown out still.
5: This is, I mean, that is a jaw-dropping number. It's hard to describe to people who aren't in this business what kind of number that is. You know, I, I do a radio show every day with Glenn Beck. And people remember Glenn from from his time at Fox News, and so much of this is so, <clears throat> so familiar. Uh, but people don't really remember that before he was on Fox News, he did a little show over at CNN Headline News uh, at 7 o'clock for a few years. We were doubling those numbers in the demo at CNN Headline News, not even regular CNN. And, oh. I mean, 90,000 in the demo is catastrophic. If you look back, and it's funny looking at the Dominion text that came out, they were panicking over a few people leaving for, to, to Newsmax for a while during the post-election aftermath. I can't even imagine what is going on over there. They must be running around panicking. And maybe that explains the sloppiness of this campaign or this this alleged campaign from people like Virganti. Um And I will say alleged because I don't want negative things leaked about my children to their school newspaper. But uh, mm-hmm. I will say this is a type of campaign that looks terrible uh, because they seem incredibly desperate. This is the, not just the number one. Uh, cable news channel this is the number one or number two overall cable channel uh, month after month after month for years and years and years and years and they're turning out you know audiences that are similar to fish tanks at pit, uh, pet stores right now this is a <laughs> real problem for them
3: so i'm not a quick uh math person as i assume you guys aren't either otherwise you wouldn't be journalists like me um but a, a quick chicken scratch back of the envelope shows me tucker's last friday in the demo again that's the most important number 25 54 year olds he got 270,000. 270,000. Tucker's last Friday. Now they're at 90. Even I remember that 27 divided by nine is three. <laughs> so what, oh, he's, he was tripling. They've lost two thirds of their audience. He was tripling the number that they're getting here. I'm, so now they're in an all, all-out panics, do you? you? say you wonder what's going on there. Yes, they're in a panic and they're more than ever determined to keep Tucker silent. They're like, oh my God, we got to shut him up. He's going to bring all those viewers. They don't get it. Tucker's audience is mad. They're going to stay mad and they're going to continue to punish Fox while it keeps him leashed. The only hope they have is to unleash the guy and let him just use his voice elsewhere and try to treat him somewhat fairly now. here's the deal um they i think this is extraordinary dave they put out their executive vice president
0: hey stupid there you are how's it going man
7: hey bergasham happy log Bomber.
0: yeah happy log Bomber to you uh any reflections on our discussion wide-ranging last night um
7: Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, so to say my love of Judaism versus uh, my failure to fit in with the Jewish community and, uh, you know, somewhat as like a bearer of Judaism, you know, I talk to Judaism constantly, really with, you know, everybody everywhere I go. Um, And I feel pretty comfortable with that. Although generally, I feel semi-uncomfortable with, uh, you know, the larger Jewish community. Although I could play like Jewish geography and like knowing these people or like, you know, demographics. So, uh, you know, there's difference. People are interested in Judaism and people are interested in Jews. And, uh, you know, in some sense, they come hand in hand. They're one and the same. Uh, but in many aspects, they're completely different. And a lot of people purely have an interest in Judaism. Um, as where other people purely have an interest in, in Jews.
0: Hmm. Okay, so say 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 the essence of your point one more time. Let me think about it a little bit more. Say it in a couple of sentences for me again.
7: Once, as someone who loves Judaism, mm-hmm. you walks around largely, you know, as a Hasidic Jew, I basically wear my tzitzit and yarmulke everywhere I go for my whole adult life. Um, and have also largely had dealings with, uh, non-Jews most of my adult life, besides for a handful of years where I was, uh, you know, clustered within the Hasidic r- world. And even that, you know, I, I had relatively more dealings with non-Jews than probably your average Hasid. uh, I guess we'll maybe focus on today where, you know, now after COVID-19, I'm not. I mean, I'm not really doing anything within the Jewish community. Almost all my dealings are with uh, you know, non-Jews, secular Jews, and I love Judaism, and uh, I like talking about it. People ask me about it constantly. I still you know dress uh, yarmulke and tzitzis basically everywhere I go, and I feel extremely comfortable talking about Judaism. Although I feel relatively comfortable talking about Jews, but I was thinking about the the Academy of uh, interactions with people who are curious about Judaism versus people who are curious about, uh, about Jews.
0: Okay, so you feel much more at ease, much more comfortable, much more excited, and much more competent uh, making your way through Judaism as opposed to concrete Jewish community.
7: Yeah, I feel sufficient to, or, you know, I mean, relatively, I'm probably pretty adept at navigating the Jewish community and even talking about Jews because, uh, you know, I know most relatively, I'm pretty connected in the Jewish community. I could uh, play Jewish geography, Um you know, I could do like demographics and sectarianism and, you know, like two Jews, three opinions. Um And I'm not sure, like, God forbid, I'm going to say as bad as like Aaron Amihud cause I because I do think I love Jews. Um, I don't really have anything bad to say about Jews. I just feel distant from the community. And, uh, you know, when I was in Brooklyn, I would be like, uh, a tour guide to the community as where, like here in Metro Detroit, I never play that role. I never bring anybody to the community, even the downtown synagogue, which was like liberal. There are hardly any Jews there. I used to, uh. You have non Jews and they ask me about Judaism, I take them to the downtown synagogue, and they weren't really appreciated of that. And uh you know, so I haven't played like tour guide to the Jewish community for years, and then it's easier to pe talk about Jews and I mean, because I'm assuming that may be something that you're familiar with is being like tour guide to the Jewish community and uh and then if you can't really navigate that role as tour guide to the Jewish community, it makes a difficult situation. I don't, do you feel that like you, you've at least periods in your life, you were tour guide to the Jewish community, to outsiders that you met?
0: Yeah, somewhat. So I invited, for example, Kevin McDonald to Shabbat dinner, Shabbat services. I, you know, often uh, try to explain Judaism and, and, and Jews to non-Jews, I I know a lot of people who haven't knowingly met met a Jew in their life. So I'd say explainer of these these different worlds. So I explain Christianity or Seventh-day Adventism to Jews who are curious about how Christians process things and then I explain Jews and Judaism to Christians who don't really know many Jews. But here's my here's my thesis. Here's my hypothesis on what you just said, but I'll just frame it strictly in terms of myself. So I've had my share of discomfort with Jews, my share of uh, challenges with Jews, my share of failures with Jews in addition to successes and and joy. And I would say that overwhelmingly my discomfort with Jews is overwhelmingly just a reflection of my discomfort with myself. It really doesn't have anything to do with them. And picking up on your points from last night uh, about how difficult it is to make your life make your way through the jewish community as either a half jew or as a convert i don't think i feel that i think i feel that i've been pretty close to 100 treated on my own merits so the the problems that i've had in organized jewish life i've had those problems in other forms of organized community the problems that i've had with jews individually i've had with non-jews individually so I would see myself and my journey in Jewish life and my successes and failures pretty much close to 100% simply reflecting who I am as a person and who I have been as a person and you know, more adaptive and and less adaptive, you know, habits that I've, I've picked up. So for example, when I was a kid, I was beaten a lot. And so as a result of that, I picked up the habit of lying when I was in trouble. Now, at times that that havoc got me out of further beatings but then it that habit took on a life of its own and it hasn't served me well as I, i've moved through adulthood so my thesis is my discomfort with with the uh, jews or jewish community to the extent it exists is virtually 100 percent my own discomfort with myself my own failures my own frailties my own vulnerabilities my own inability to see and grapple and navigate reality my struggles with you know doing what i say and saying what i do leading a coherent and you know transparent and honest and upright life so to to what extent do you think your discomfort with jews is a reflection of your discomfort with you
7: yeah, I would largely agree with that assessment. Although I'm not sure I have such a discomfort with Jews. I just, uh, you'll feel, uh, uh, you'll lack of my place within the Jewish community or.
0: Hey, can you, you hold be, the show, uh, show down for a minute while I take a phone call? Oh yeah, sure. Great. So, uh, just carry on.
7: Okay. Yeah. yeah God bless. So, uh, yeah, I love the Jewish people. I love Judaism. Um, fitting in with the Orthodox community is extremely difficult. And uh, you know, so I, I was making the point, no path to leadership. And I did a lot of things in the Jewish community. I was always, you're know, kind of like a second fiddle to rabbis or to kids of rabbis, people with uh, business people, prominent positions. And my stake in the Jewish community was always in association with a prominent member of the Jewish community. And, you know, so to say, like, as a Jew, I would always, things that was activity, it was always like, I'm working together with this person who everybody knows, as opposed to, you know, like me as a half Jew, who uh, needed to demonstrate my connection to the Jewish community through uh, working together with, others. So that's, I I was differentiating the path to leadership. I mean, certainly Jewish community always put me to work and you relatively treated me reciprocally. I would say that I think I've found in other activities say that, uh, no, I actually have found more a path to leadership among non-Jews. And I think, I think it's something unique about Judaism that I'm not necessarily fighting it, like, uh, you know, accept it like the, you know, the demora of, uh, you know, of the convert that wants to convert on a uh, condition of becoming Cohen Guttle. And uh and actually uh you know rabbis or you know more Haredi societies almost made it explicit to me. It's like hey, God forbid you'll never you'll you'll you're never gonna advance in the Jewish community like that. Uh you know, that lineage was very important like you know in in the Jewish community. Um but I mean, we don't have to circle back around that. So so I, I was thinking, you know, the roles I found myself playing in was a tour guide to the Jewish community. So as an outsider, perpetual outsider, who, uh, many times found myself interacting with Goyim on behalf of Hasidim Choretum, um, you know, may, I spoke good English or, uh, certain business things, driving, uh, you know, even like the Arab and uh, semi-official roles of interacting, although it was always on behalf of like a rabbi or a communal leader that I was just kind of like the not, the half-Jewish assistant. Um, but, uh, you know, to be a tour guide of, of the Jewish community, like a Jewish friendly, a friend of the community who met outsiders regularly and then brought them to the community. Some of them uh, maybe the community liked or didn't, or and then once they got within the community, um, you know, they might be on their own or they might uh, continue their friendship with me, but you know, it would be understood kind of like, uh, okay, like Duvid might be a nice guy and he might've done his best to, uh, you know, try to explain these things to you, but then it would just kind of like pass them off to the community. And, uh, you know, if they were successful with the community, uh, then it would almost be, you know, just a fact of history that I was the one who, you know, gave them their first tour.
0: And how would you compare the way that uh, Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews relate to you?
7: Um, I have a much easier time relating with Orthodox Jews because, I mean, the one hand, because, I mean, there's a lot of skepticism in the non-Orthodox community about orthodoxy, and then second upon that to say that, like, well, you know, who is this, you know, half-Jewish, baltjuva poor representation of the orthodox community? So, you know, it also goes to, like, the path to leadership, if leadership's a poor word, to be representative of that, like, like, I'm a bad representative of the Jewish people, although, obviously, I am, a representative of the Jewish people. And because, you know, I'm out there and I deal with large amounts of people, or may, you know, maybe have at least some level of uh, your prominence, recognizability that I'm an intermediary between the Jewish community and people with little access to the Jewish community, whether that's secular or Orthodox. But I, th- I think it'd be much easier for like Orthodox because I would be able to like, you know, give a resume or you know, just kind of like hand people off to the rabbis, as opposed to uh, you know, like we were talking about the path to leadership, because the secular Jewish community also has a strong leadership and uh, message that they're trying to convey. So you know, I can work together with secular Jews. I have a lot of secular Jewish friends, um, usually based upon um, common interest. Uh, But, you know, so to say, I think you know most secular Jews, even more than Orthodox Jews, would be like, oh, this is not, this guy is not representative of Judaism. So I've kind of internalized that, like, well, I'm not really representative of Judaism. I'm kind of just like, you know, like a half Jew, Balchuba, who loves Judaism, but not really representative of it.
0: Okay. And so where we are in life, we're, we're both bachelors. And we're not uh, you know, super prosperous, super successful people. We've had little successes. So I would say that for myself, it's overwhelmingly my own actions that have led me to the place that I, I'm in, in life, that I've been overwhelmingly responsible for my position in life or lack thereof, for my happiness or unhappiness. In life, I think it's like overwhelmingly more than ninety five percent a result of my choices, my words, uh, my actions. Do you think that where you are in life is overwhelmingly the result of your choices, or do you think it's the result of bad luck, or how do you view it?
7: I'm with you that one hundred percent. Like you, know, like I, fully believe in uh, taking responsibility, and uh, your life is what we make out of it. And uh, I mean, we've discussed that from the beginning and I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that. I'm not blaming anybody else other than myself. I'm, I'm just trying to, to the best of my ability, describe social dynamics or, you know, failures. And I think, you know, some of what I'm describing might sound, you know, that's why I'm, I'm bouncing it off of you. We're not, I'm not blaming the Jewish community, but I think that these are, you know, cultural social dynamics that... Might sound similar to you that you' were just like, yeah, it's kind of it's uh these are your know, difficulties that maybe other people uh, might face, but I'm, I'm not putting blame on the Jewish community or anybody other than myself.
0: yeah, okay, so I was kind of challenged to assemble my rules for life, so I want to bounce some of them off you, get your reactions, so first one is taking a sentiment that's attributed to Francis of Assisi, and he said that at all times, preach what you believe. Occasionally, use words, so in other words we 're always transmitting like whatever we stand for, whatever's going on with us, is always going to affect other people uh, there 's nothing that you can just do on your own that won 't have any effect on other people. If people on their own are doing drugs or watching porn or playing video games or studying Torah or you know engaging in prayer, meditation, that is then going to have effects on people around them. So, what do you think about this idea that we are always transmitting? what we are like if we're depressed if we're stuck if we're angry if we're happy if we're at ease if we're at peace if we're in a, in a holy place this is always going to transmit you know to other people and to the wider community any thoughts on that
7: just first like uh, are you are you reading an order from your webpage or are you just because yes, I, your... I, I just
0: went to the personal section so at all times preach what you believe occasionally use words meaning we're always transmitting so you don't have okay. to actually say anything to be most powerfully transmitting like usually words are not the most important I, I heard you, part I of communication to along
7: on your page and uh, but so, okay so you skipped the political part went to personal, personal yeah yeah i would agree. so when you were asking like rules for life and i have a few like duvidisms things that i commonly say uh, but you know, generally, I've kind of resigned to the sages and the Torah. So, like, I have rules for life. Feel like, you know, you say that, I'll think of like Perkyavos or the sages. And like, yeah, hundred um, percent. I, I think I take the Mishnah or Maimonides more like in a God center. That I think it says picture of the world in an even fifty-fifty balance. And what you do could shift it uh, one way or the other. And not just in your dealings with other people, but, uh, you know, even in the privacy of your own um, actions. So, like, yeah, 100% uh, agree with that. And uh, although usually I'm more universal and God-centered, so if I phrased it, I would universalize it as opposed to focus on the, uh, you know, causing uh, uh, with other people. But, uh, yeah, 100%
0: okay uh second second rule is that uh since you enter into any kind of a relationship whether it's relationship with people that you're live streaming with people that you're working with people that you're praying with you're inevitably starting a countdown on feeling betrayed i mean you can't start connecting with people without at some point being inevitably shocked and disappointed and feeling betrayed that the other party has different priorities from what you expect so what do you think about this idea that as soon as you enter into any kind of relationship, you are starting on a countdown to feeling betrayed?
7: Yeah, I don't think I would phrase it that way. Cause like betraying in the meaning that a person has broken their word. So, um, you know, like an expression, everyone's got their own Shulkanork or their own you know, ways they like to do things. And, uh, you know, cause I had a lot of roommates at various points living in Israel and in New York and, uh, you're working different businesses and, and uh, for you know, probably a decade of my life. And yeah, like constantly people do things differently and uh, get upset or you want uh, them to do things the same way. It's never going to happen. I would put betrayed more at a level where a person has made an agreement with you and broke that. So, uh, you know, generally, I think I've had a lot of relations where I was never betrayed uh, you know, because the expectations weren't on, uh, you know, the level. All I expect you to do is keep your word. So, like, even streaming, you know, say, well, has Luke Ford betrayed me? And like, well, you know, I'm not sure. We we you know, we might have had some, you know, struggles in our relationships or period where we enjoyed each other's company more or less. But was there ever a betrayment in 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 the terms like where someone gave their word, made a promise, and then broke it so i'm not sure if you're giving a lesser definition where where you know of betrayment where in that manner
0: well just that the feeling of being betrayed so just that that general feeling is pretty inevitable whenever you enter into a relationship so you're, you're thinking about it in terms of like a specific you know obligation i'm talking about it's more... a premise
7: I mean if you're putting betrayed like like i'm putting it straight i consider like betrayal like breach of promise and it sounds like you're giving a softer definition of betrayal that or you're expecting at some point that all relationships will breach their promises
0: yeah i'm expecting everyone's going to breach their promises
7: um yeah i'm not sure i think most of my relationships uh you know try to be upfront about expectations and i mean if you mean like your know, people like eventually like stole from me or or even like you know, bad mouth i mean people definitely wrong me cause me harm but in terms like uh, a breach of promise like okay like i thought you were my friend and you were bad mouthing me behind my back and saying well you know you never took an oath or promised you were never going to bad mouth me behind my back and uh you know so just some sort of expectation out of the relationship and being clear about boundaries and then having you know minimal boundaries that uh to keep the relationship going that haven't been breached as opposed to you know if you feel betrayed that you know the, the person you know sort of say was like bad mouthing you behind your back but you're saying well was that a breach of promise you know i never stipulated that you can't bad mouth me behind my back it doesn't make me feel good but you know, at the end of the day, I can't really expect you to not badmouth me behind my back.
0: Well, what about the experience of you know live streaming becoming an e-personality, and then having some people you know ridicule and mock you and tear you down and call you an anti-Semite? Did that feel like uh, a massive betrayal, even if it came from, say, strangers?
7: Well, no. I'm I'm defining betrayal specifically as like a breach of contract or some a breach of a promise. So, if the person never made some sort of promise to me, um, you know, like, if you have roommates or something, like, you promised you were never going to, you know, like, touch my uh, Super Nintendo or something, or, you know, whatever the case is, like, it was a clear breach of promise that was agreed upon. So, in that case, like, yeah, I consider it mean, unfriendly, unpleasant, but I, I wouldn't classify it as a betrayal unless it was some stipulated promise that was breached.
0: Okay, third rule: uh, Don't separate yourself from the community. When you do, you are less safe, right? And you are less likely to prosper and to thrive and to have, you know, good things in your life. What do you think of this idea? Don't separate yourself from the community.
7: Yeah, I'm a straight Perkyavos. I'll I'll teach that, uh, or you know, like it's a straight perkyalvos, Don't separate yourself from the community. It's important to be part of a community. Um, you know, sometimes you have to go your own way or uh, have independence um, or avoid toxic uh, behavior or, you know, people putting you down. But uh, usually that doesn't necessitate separation from the community. There could be like levels of uh, involvement. Um, but yeah, I'm a hundred percent, you know, I, I usually like a duvidism, self-improvement works better, uh, better in teams. You know like that uh but uh yeah I, I assume you would agree that there's levels of involvement involvement and sometimes it's better to uh you know distance yourself from the community or, or be less involved but uh, you know, without separating yourself from it
0: yeah but uh, generally speaking you want to be you know right there in the mix you, you don't usually want to be separate from the community and if you can't Get along with the community then in my way of thinking you need to go find another community like let, let's say that you're a, a traditional person and your community is filled with you know trans individuals and your community celebrates transitioning and this is just repugnant to you from, from my, my way of thinking you need to go find a new community now since since COVID, you have practically largely separated yourself from the community what's your way of uh, thinking about reconciling these two things on the one hand you don't believe in separating yourself from the community on the other hand you practically have chosen to do so
7: yeah mean, so there's levels like okay like going to shul going to events or what level so just like showing up so you know like you're like i went to shul i would pray speak to a handful of people shake a few hands and go home i wasn't really that strong part of the community i just showed up and you know in the sense i didn't uh, you betray the community i didn't turn against the community i uh you still showed up like a few zoom calls or i'm still in the email list uh you know it's still like a larger community events uh you know through internet networks larger business uh, level uh but yeah, to some extent, like I said, like, well, was I really part of the community? So, you know, the, the Orthodox community, that that's kind of what I said, okay, like, I'm not really part of the Orthodox community. Uh, I'm just a person who tries to live according to Orthodoxy, but largely falls short in a person who goes to Orthodox synagogues. Uh, and so I just stopped going to Orthodox synagogues. But beyond showing up, that that was really the extent of, my affiliation with the community because I wasn't really like tight with the community besides showing up to shul. So, I mean, maybe if you have a tighter connection to the synagogue and they said, well, is that your community? Like, well, you know, just, okay, I show up to shul. That's my community. Uh, you know, maybe your connections tighter. And and what would you say to a person like, look, I've been going to shul for like years. I don't have any friends. And all I do is like, show up and say some prayers and then go home, you know, saying, well, is that your community?
0: Yeah, it's not much of a community. I mean, it's certainly better than nothing. But some things would have to change. Uh, Usually, I I think one would seek out a a mentor or a friend in the community or uh, rabbinic guidance, because that, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, what you're describing.
7: Well, I mean, so in New York, I was able to find a community. Like, I would still show up to synagogues and maybe in Los Angeles you found like a private minion or a small group of people. But like, if you went to, you know, like the young Israel or certain synagogues, you might have a handful of friends or people to talk to, but it's not really your community. So you had to find a community and, uh, you know, maybe in my circumstances, you are know, the only thing really in walking distance to me is a young Israel. And then if I'm going to go to like the Oak Park Orthodox community, you know, like I largely got put together, like I was with the Russian Balchuvas. And so like I spent two years, you know, praying every day with the Russian Balchuvas and, uh, you know, Sabbath going to the young Israel. And like, to some extent, yeah, I was part of the community with the the young Israel. I was part of the community with the Russian Balchuvas, uh, but it didn't really feel like my community and say, well, maybe my community doesn't exist. So I have a handful of friends in the community that I maintain my friendships with. Uh, But, you know, I kind of like struck out onto my own and be like, well, I'm not really getting anywhere with these communities. So, you know, I struck out on my own in the downtown synagogue and then, you know, I was making community there and then they took a hard turn to the left. And so I've struck out into other areas and and I tried my best to not separate or burn bridges with the, you know, the Russian balichubas or the young Israel or the downtown synagogue, just to you uh try to find community. I and mean, it sounds like, I mean, just from what I know about your bio, you probably had similar where where you were bouncing between, you know, like we just like Aisha Torah or, you know, young Israel or these various places. It wasn't, you know, like you might have showed up or had a handful of friends. And then eventually you found, you know, kind of like a, a small group of writers or a private minion to uh you'll know, be like your community, but you know, what was A Torah, like Young Israel, was that really your community?
0: Well, it was for a while, but then I polluted it <laughs> and I got moved on. <laughs> but I mean I can I can go back now. I step back, you know, inside these institutions. So
7: did not you mean, go back like I'm saying that that you that you I mean God forbid if you did something to burn your bridge there, but I was saying like you but before you burnt your bridge you say like no, that was your community. You felt like yes. you weren't just like a guy who was showing up or you know, no. be trying to pull, pull your worth. you felt like that was your community
0: yes i felt very much that was my community and you know i felt you know completely welcomed completely a, a part of things and um it, it was good i don't think people who haven't experienced orthodox judaism understand how tight how intense and how challenging uh, Orthodox Jewish community is. It, it's so much tighter and more intense than even the very tight knit and intense Seventh-day Adventist community that I come from. So I, I th-
7: Sorry. so I would say like, okay, like I was a member of Kiddush club and I knew basically, I know basically, you know, I haven't been there, for, but, uh, it was probably a handful, but I basically knew everyone in the young Israel, everyone at the Russian Balichuva Shul, and, uh, you know, I, I was part of kiddish club and, uh, I had a lot of people I spoke to, um, but there, there's cliques and like, I wasn't really part of any clique. like, I just showed up, I prayed, I talked to a few people, I went to kiddish club and then I went home and, uh, you know, okay. I'm an old bachelor and I'm not saying like, uh, you might, I'm not saying it's people like purposely excluded. I'm not, I don't have any complaints on anybody. You know, God forbid, I'm not saying anything by just saying, I didn't really feel like I'm part of, uh, a community, like, you know, I just, uh, it was a shul I went to to pray and then I went home and I was friendly with people. I had people I spoke with, but, uh, you know, I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure that there are cliques of people that are pretty tight with each other. And I wasn't really tight with anybody. So you you could work with it and say, like, oh, I really got to get in with one of these cliques. Or just say, like, it's not really the community. It's not meant for me. Um It's nothing wrong with that. You, you know, nothing wrong with them. They just have a different way, and uh, I'm probably not going to fit in with any of these clicks. I, I don't know if you're saying it like that. If, if you agree with me, like, like I mean, there's you could go to shul and just pray and speak and be friendly with people, or you could be part of one of the clicks. And if you're not part of any of the clicks, you uh, know, you're, you're kind of just a guy who shows up to pray.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that analysis, except instead of saying clicks, I would say if you don't have friends, then you're. You know very much on, on the margins so i always had friends at the major synagogues that i went to like real real friends and so that just completely transforms the experience of anything so for me the difference between you know walking five miles on my own and walking five miles with a friend is just night and day the difference between eating a meal on my own and eating a meal with a friend is night and day the difference between, you know, dovening with friends and just dovening where I don't have friends is night and day studying Torah when I'm with friends versus studying Torah when I don't have friends there. Uh, to me, the friendship makes all the difference in the world. And so if you don't have friends, then then well, I, I know friend. I feel, feel disconnected. I would feel disconnected. Um, I, I wouldn't be around very long if I didn't have friends at sure.
7: Or well, just define friends because I like, okay, I'm friendly with people. You spend time well, like, together. Yeah, uh, I just... spend time outside of shul. So to yeah. say, like I'm friendly with people in shul, but I don't spend time with any of them outside of shul. And so that's if if you would agree with that distinction, when you mean friends, you mean people that you your friendship uh, extends outside of uh, the synagogue.
0: Yes. Yes. You 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 meet up outside of synagogue. You you know, socialize, you do things together outside of synagogue.
7: Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I use the word click like that. And, and, uh, that's kind of what I meant by that. Like, you like friends, mm-hmm. click the people that, you know, they, they're, they don't just talk during synagogue or friendly with each other, but they, you know, are friendly, spend a lot of time with each other outside of synagogue. So you, you either have to work your way into one of those clicks or, you're basically, you know, just a guy who shows up. Or, or the, I mean, there's a lot yes. of people who, you know, I uh, professionals like you know, doctors and doctors or workaholics that uh, aren't really that friendly people. That I mean, so I mean, I would say that a lot of people in the synagogue probably aren't part of any cliques. They you know, because they're workaholics and they and they just uh, you pray and work largely or or caught up with their own family. But you know, then there are cliques and friendship circles
0: and uh yeah let me just jump in so for most orthodox jews just uh, providing for their family like you, most orthodox jews have large families and so orthodox jewish life tends to revolve around the family like the center of orthodox jewish life is not the synagogue but right? the center of orthodox jewish life is, is the home and, and the table and so orthodox jews tend to have large families they have to work very hard and frequently very long hours to provide for their families And so, after you meet those obligations, frequently there's not much, you know, energy or room left in in people's lives after they meet their obligations to their family for friends.
7: Yeah, I mean, so most of the clicks are like younger, newly married couples, and their friendship clicks are you kind of based on help on you raising their kids as part of a group, even during COVID nineteen. I think they, like, they started using the word, like, pad for your relation to, like, you know, who you allow into your house or your kids to play with. But a lot of, uh, you know, in fact, the very wealthy people or powerful uh, people in the Jewish community, um, they're really not part of cliques. They're workaholics. And, uh, you know, or if they're empty nesters, uh, you know, they don't really hang out. They're workaholics. And their cliques is professional so you know maybe like the young Israel there might be like a click of uh, college professors a click of uh, dentists a click of uh, lawyers or, or whatever and they probably don't really hang out with each other much outside of synagogue it's more the younger mar- newly married people uh, that uh, you know are clicky like that uh, but there's internal clicks and and you're saying like okay like because they're mostly family people and uh you know, then you have the Simcha circuit. So you know in some in some level uh you know, the level of the the you know the the friendship barrier is do you get invited to the Simchas? And uh you know maybe the very wealthy people or, or like the rabbi, everyone in the synagogue gets invited. But uh you know usually that's pretty expensive and uh you know there'll be a click of uh you know the Simcha circuit and uh, you have to work to be part of the clique, and you know, get invited to the stuff, and then you know, some level of like social climbing, that has its own flavor in the Jewish community. It's probably generic uh, to anything, but uh, you know, so that level, there's being part of the community, being part of the community has layers and levels to it. So I don't think I separated myself from the community. I just uh, you know, like stopped showing up, but the level I wasn't really. You're much of an insider in the community. I was just a, a guy who showed up to Minion.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, my next rule for life is that one should act, generally speaking, as though everybody knows everything, meaning the opposite of what I've done much of my life, which was to try to get as way, <laughs> away with as much as possible. And so, kind of the opposite of this trying to get away with as much as possible is to conduct yourself as though everybody knows everything. You're not trying to get away with stuff and you know transmit completely different messages to different groups instead you know you live life on the up and up so what do you think about the idea of live as though everybody knows everything and it's the very opposite of trying to get away with stuff that you hide
7: yeah and i put it more theologically like you know, someone who fears god and like okay you know like our father in heaven uh, knows everything that we do we can't hide anything and so like an open book like that uh to other people you also just uh you know kind of assumption that everybody is familiar with my sins and shortcomings uh but the reality is that's generally not the case even you know think like my parents are the people who know me best uh you usually don't know large aspects of my life you know it's like okay i'm like a vegetarian i'm into hinduism or you know, like all this my streaming, my interest in like science or consciousness or, or chess, or something like that, so you know it could be you know someone know me for years like, oh, you play chess, I didn't even know that, um but yeah, I generally try to live like the assumption that everybody at least could know every everything, including my shortcomings. I'm not trying to uh you know pull anything off on anybody, uh but as that, I said, take the more theological uh you know view on that uh, you know like of uh, of God. You fear of God—that's God knows everything, including the uh, the deepest depravities of our heart.
0: And uh, what do you think of the incel phenomenon? Meaning, men who are involuntarily celibate. Uh, do you do you identify? Do you resonate? Is this uh, a concerning group to you? What do you think of the incel phenomenon?
7: You, you know, God forbid, uh, you because I'm more renunciate and in, and. In, uh, you know, opposition or or at least personally or um, theoretically to extramarital relations. So I think the incel phenomenon is largely in relation to sinful sexual relations. And you think with all the promiscuity, the people missing out on the promiscuity, and we've talked about that. I mean, we didn't mention it the other day. I I almost brought it up, but, uh, you know, the level of a baltruv or a convert in the Jewish community uh, you know, plays in Orthodox Jews leaving the fold, and uh, you know, like how many Hasidim that wanted me to introduce them to girls, and like I don't, you know, like, I don't know any girls, like how many, but like you know, certainly I knew more girls than they did, and uh, you know, so if you're talking like you know, Orthodox incels that uh, even though they're Orthodox, still want to have forbidden sexual relations, versus in the Orthodox world. If you compare like, you know, the should have crisis or, or, you know, something like, you know, that we're old bachelors. So I, I differentiate those that incels are usually people that uh, want to have forbidden sexual relations as opposed to, you know, like the should have crisis of know uh, old bachelors that can't find uh, spouses. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, mm-hmm. this, obviously, you know, just looking up, so in the mirror, God forbid, you know, it's obviously you know, so I don't consider myself an incel, but, you know, like I suffer being an old bachelor. And, uh, you know, like the shit of crisis, or however you'd call that.
0: Yeah, when I was younger, in my 20s and 30s, I'd often, you know, hook up with women I had no intention of pursuing any kind of relationship with. And once I got into my 40s and 50s, that, that life was just no longer interesting or tenable to me. I, I would only want to be intimate with someone, you know, wh- whom I, I was going to marry. So... The, the hookup scene you know, starts to, to pall, particularly, you know, given that many of the women who are most uh, vulnerable to it tend to be deeply damaged and therefore, you know, psychotic and dangerous.
7: It's a recent thing. To, I know enough about your bio and you know, maybe even you were like a late bloomer at health issues. So, you know, if you're comparing like the younger people, when did you say you like you were in your mid-20s when you lost your virginity? I
0: was 22.
7: 22 or or but then but then it was slow progress like before you reached uh, like LA in your promiscuous yeah. years it it was a yeah. slow process and uh you know but you're talking decades ago before uh you know the internet before the the mass uh you know spread of pornography before you know, even in the 80s and the in uh, your know, mass promiscuity and decline of sexual norms like you know, after Clinton and of uh, various things So that in your age, like, it's probably normal that, uh, you know, just like, you know, you're like, even though you weren't strongly Christian, you're just like a guy who couldn't get laid, but wanted to get laid. Uh, But now that the, you know, the incel culture is something a little bit different and it's probably technologically based. And it's a little bit more based on, uh, you know, the information and all the stuff being uh, out there and having access to knowing what's going on and feeling left out. So like, you know, Maybe, God forbid, you're relatively, I don't know, if being a virgin until you're 22, if you felt like you're like a loser or you're like you, know, you were missed out and you had friends that lost their virginity. And I mean, like, I think, God forbid, in public school, you're probably like half the people lost their virginity in high school. So, you know, like in the Orthodox world, like being an old virgin is, but, uh, you know, so I don't know your background, if you felt like an incel as a youth. Or just didn't exist like that?
0: Well, I started having girlfriends at age 16, but I was kind of afraid of girls, somewhat afraid of intimacy, and kind of afraid of the effect that it would have on me. I I was afraid that I would go crazy once I started having sex because, you know, I wanted it so much that I was concerned that I wouldn't exercise, you know, good judgment in that arena and had every reason to be concerned. so I mean I was kind of afraid of women afraid of myself they're you know, probably up and in, up into my late 40s so women are such a you know mysterious foreign country right they're just so completely different from from us do you how, how would you describe your reaction to women would it be fear would it be intrigue would it be distaste how would you describe it
7: I'm not sure. you like, I was always conservative. I always had pro-life leanings. So, you know, obviously I suffered from male sexual urges, but you generally, I was, I was in favor of abstinence, but like as a youth, my parents didn't push it upon me. And I went to public school and secular school. So I I was, uh, you know, from the few conservatives. Uh, And, you know, I mean, God forbid, you know, women didn't necessarily take a big interest in me. In, uh, you know, high school, I was a chess player. It was kind of like, uh, you know, geeky and awkward. And, uh, and then I went to become ultra-Orthodox at 18. So, uh, you know, women were not a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, I, I like women. You know, like I, I try to be egalitarian, especially, you know, since I've moved, moved out of, uh living within ultra orthodox circles yeah, i'd like to build up a family but uh your know, women have not been you know, a big part of my life in, in almost all my friend circles and uh it's been you're know, mostly uh male in my i've always leaned right even from high school
0: okay so i think a lot about state like i want to be in a good state i, I want to be in reality i want to be appropriately humble appropriately confident i i don't want to be manic i don't want to have an exaggerated sense of my own importance i want to be appropriately grateful like it's really important to me to be in the right state and so there are certain certain techniques that i've learned about that are really helpful for me to to stay in the right state so i don't become you know grandiose unnecessarily obnoxious have a you know, uh, vastly exaggerate a sense of my own importance. So, thinking about people that I'm grateful for, like people who've been kind to me, helps to put me in the right state. Uh, thinking about times that I've just been absurdly selfish and cruel to, to other people, it kind of reminds me. Oh yeah, you know, I'm very easily capable of being a total jerk to people. Uh, is emotional state and you know st- emotional sobriety seeing. You know appropriately in reality uh, are these things that you think about and if so what do you do to try to keep yourself in a good emotional state
7: yeah focus meditation you know, i came onto these things young you know because i went to israel and started yeshiva and hasidic meditation um you know, at 19 years old 18 19 years old already so uh i almost You basically try to never focus on negativity or, you know, even people who've wronged me or injustices try to stay positive and, uh, you know, due largely to yeshiva training that would be. Academic, you know, Torah. So, you know, I could have an emotional state, like I'm bothered by something. It's hard to concentrate, but I'll force myself to study anyways and. You being part of like charity or the community, always be active in, in doing things and pull myself together to do it no matter what the case is. Uh, and I, I was always rather emotionless, relatively from my youth. So uh, you might maybe slightly depressant, but uh, you know, typically I don't suffer much like anger or jealousy or strong emotions. And and when I do, I'm I'm able to uh, you focus and and usually say like I'll just get back to studying, hit the book So, you know, if I have like a bad stream or a bad argument or, or something bad happens, um I'll just go home and and study. Uh you know, I, I don't usually call or complain or uh you know, try to focus on the positive and and uh, long-term goals.
0: Okay, so if I was to look at my emotional palette, I would say probably about 1% of the time I feel humiliated. I would say probably 1 to two, three percent of the time I feel angry about something. I would say I feel a strong degree of joy probably 10, 10, 15, 20 percent of the time. And then I would say I would, I feel content probably 40 percent of the time. I'd say I probably feel somewhat restless, uh, anxious. Uh, The other ten percent of the time so how would you describe your emotional palette how would you break it down
7: as i'm I'm pretty neutral on most cases like you know you were telling me like i looked happy like i didn't necessarily feel happy uh so i think i'm relatively emotionless and i said like uh i came on to character refinement pretty young you know my, my youth was relatively tame um and uh you know then went to israel yeshiva did you ever hear of a, a book called hejbin and nefesh yes
0: uh, uh reckoning of the soul
7: yeah it's a common expression but there was a book some people claim it was actually copied from benjamin franklin uh in his method but as like a musser book where there's like charts and like you're supposed to like every time you uh you had like, uh, you know, anger or lust or, or or greed that you would like, you know, make a note and then you'd have your, you know, like nightly, weekly reckoning with uh, your bad character. It was an active role to character refinement. So I, I really liked Musser and I came on to Musser um, right away, you know, after, you know, went to Israel 19 years old and, uh, you know, I was in Israel for two, three years and I meditated on it. I, I actively tried to uh you root out my bad character, angry, uh, you know, lust, envy, and uh you know, thank God I did it in my youth. So uh I I g I don't think I don't think really I've harbored on uh you know, there's the statement in the you know, the, the Tanya, the Chabad uh book Say for Shelbaini of uh you know being the average person then you know goes like to be righteous just to be an average person is very difficult and uh that means that uh you, know, you have to repent every night and uh you know so years ago i used to say the krishma shall prayer where i forgave everybody uh but you know generally i took that to heart and still till today i repent every night before i go to sleep and try to uh, relieve myself of uh, any anger or jealousy or hatred including forgiving people who've wronged me and so you know thank god i came up i came upon that in my in my uh you know 19 years old and i've been doing it ever since so i I don't know if you ever came across that or did that type thing uh, but uh yes that you're just like okay tomorrow's a new day i'm not taking it with me till tomorrow if uh, you know maybe i'm angry and it might bother me that i can't concentrate you know later that night or, you know, smoke some weed or something. And and maybe the next day I get up, I'm still a little bit angry. Uh, but, you know, generally I was able through the practice of Orthodox Judaism, who, uh, you successfully never carry something like that on, um, you know, from one day to the next.
0: And are you still sober from the weed or have you gone back to it?
7: No, thank God. I, uh, um, have not. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I will, but, uh, you may, I think it may, it may take you know, academically to get back into the study of science because, uh, you know, like just studying Torah or various things. Um, but you know, now that I've went back into like studying science and, uh, philosophy, like, you know, there's just so much to learn and that, you know, the weed just slows me down. And I remember when I was in university, like, uh, I didn't perform, I tried to study physics and the weed just, uh. Prevented me from academically accelerating and excelling, and, and uh, you. Know, I think to some extent, I could excel in Judaism, smoking weed, but uh, like the more mathematical and scientific stuff. So I've re- rekindled my love of studying that, and uh, you know that's largely replaced the the need for weed. I mean, certain sometimes I probably could uh, you know just sit back and smoke some weed and uh but but uh i'm glad I, did, I don't and you know i'll take my life seriously and uh you know it's better i was telling michael uh you know we sat for three hours and he was saying like like you know he's getting tired he's losing his concentration and so you know like i told him i remember in yeshiva that, like in israel the carlin stolen rebbe said uh you know good students has three four hour study sessions every day and uh you know when i was in israel is a uh, you know uh I was I, I wasn't quite that good of a student but i took my study seriously and i had you know uh carusa and we studied uh hours you know like three hours in the morning in a different carusa you know night Seder. and uh you know then on my own i spent most of my time on my own and uh you know so you smoke weed time just goes by and uh you know so thank god the love of uh, learning and uh, reading books I, I think is uh permanently separated me from my need for your know, drugs, even with my social failings. So, you know, maybe there was a period before COVID-19, my social failings necessitated me to, you know, my weakness to smoke weed. Um, but you know, with COVID-19, even with my social failings, my love of uh, learning and reading has uh, kept me off the weed. And maybe, I don't know if you never had a dependency like that. No, I've never tried or, it. Or maybe sexual addiction or something like that. But, uh, yeah. If, if your, your love of reading and studying it could help uh, you give a replacement for that. Like, what are you going to do with all the time now? And saying, well, you know, opposite. Like, God forbid I wasted so much of my life, uh, you know, just smoking weed and, and uh, spacing out. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm going to move on with the show for today. Any final words?
7: Yeah, good having a conversation. Like I said, one of my duvidism is self-improvement works better as a group. And uh it was even in the Musr, you know, thinking back like to uh you know, like Luke Michael Russo, like the old Musar days when I was in Israel and just saw these books for the first time. Um, you know, just to, if you don't mind just say at the end, I remember Kaiser and Nefesh and and uh, I, I showed the book to my rabbi was studying with who was pretty extreme Hasidic and even was like recommended like sleeping on benches. But he was like uh you know, like he mentioned when he was young he found the book Hajjman and Netfish on his father's shelf and read it. It was like, oh man, this is such a great thing. And his father told him, you could have the book, the guy who gave it to me committed suicide. But I remember when, you know, like when I first started coming into like Musa or I, I was just like, wow. And, uh, you know, like I would have friends and we'd talk about it. So, uh, you know, appreciate Luke and Rekindling and, uh, you know, talking about these things. And, uh, you know, if you want to continue, uh, you know, reach out. God bless. Okay.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, David. Great to talk to you. Let's get a burst here of uh, some Richard Spencer commentary on the making of a murderer. Thoughts on the Hispanic
4: Nazis? He witnessed two rather shocking events. First, there was a mass shooting that left nine dead. I, I think there are additional others who are in critical condition at a shopping mall in Allen, Texas, which is north of Dallas. This was followed swiftly the next morning by a car accident that might very well have been a car attack. Um, the person who did this is named Jorge Alvarez. Um, so there were two Hispanic males, both involved in things that are terrifying. School shootings and spree shootings are nothing new. and as uh, depressing, I mean, that word again, as it might be, you could just chalk it all up to mental illness and social contagion and alienation and the availability of dangerous guns in the country, et cetera. But with both of these attacks, there seemed to be something more. So immediately after the attack occurred in Allen, Texas, I noticed on my Twitter feed that... There, I shouldn't call it gloating exactly. Maybe schadenfreude is getting closer to what I mean. But there was a, a certain euphoria about the attack of, look at this, an illegal immigrant did it. So Mauricio Garcia was killed by the police, justifiably. And uh, there was video being passed around of his corpse. And it was clear that he is Hispanic. Um, he is a uh, darker-skinned, mestizo-type um, you know what I mean. And so there was a certain uh, euphoria or schadenfreude of among the right of, you know, this is what happens when we allow these immigrants in. They're crazy. They hate America. They're criminals. They're gang members. And some of them, I assume, are good people. You know the routine. And similar emotions were expressed regarding the car incident. Then we started to learn more. At first, we learned about a strange tattoo that Garcia had on his one of his hands. Which strangely reminded me of a uh, of the logo for the Dallas Public School District. Um, as you might know, I grew up in Dallas. I lived there ever since I was around two years old until I was nineteen, and I've been back many times, of course. So I, I know that city well. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever been to Allen, but I, I've heard of it. Anyway, um, so there was a there was a lot of you know crimin- criminology type uh, analysis of the tattoo. What it means is it is it a, a car dealership? Is it a gang? Is it so on and so forth? There are many very well-organized, violent drug gangs that are involved with the cartels that, uh, of course, involve many young Hispanics. Um, But then we learned something that was ostensibly, at least, extremely bizarre. Surprising. That Garcia had a patch on his vest that said, uh, basically, right-wing death squads. R-W-D-S. What does this mean? The first time I ever heard that phrase (laughs) was... Not twenty sixteen, when that phrase was passed around Twitter on the alt right, there you know obviously it was an extremely outlandish and outrageous uh, rhetoric that predominated. But I actually heard it out of the mouth of Ann Coulter. She was actually speaking at CPAC in twenty fourteen. CPAC, of course, the conservative gathering held every year, held multiple times a year, I think. And uh, she said, "Conservatives should make it clear to Republicans that if they pass amnesty, they're going on to the death squad with the people who wrecked America." that of course got huge applause from the crowd um i can remember i think i was actually in washington at the time and uh i was with a number of other right-wing types and everyone was like oh you know based that kind of thing so what she was saying effectively and obviously she was using tough talk and you know outrageous language but what she was basically saying is that the republicans pass amnesty um we're gonna put them in a death squad i think she meant that we we're gonna put them to death uh so again That meme, I heard it first from Ann Coulter, but the meme was passed around quite a bit on Twitter after that and during the uh, Trump presidency. Uh, I think in that sense, it was more of a death squad of a group of right-wingers who were going to go kill, you know, who knows, the evil liberals who did this or illegal immigrants or whatever. Uh, And it uh, is also kind of reference to Pinochet and his attacks on his leftist enemies. So what was that patch doing on the vest of Garcia? It's all rather curious. I think you could plausibly say that uh, well, you know, it's just some uh, coincidence. He, he found some patch and put it on there. You know, bikers will put on all sorts of crazy patches and so on. Um, doesn't mean anything, but I don't think that's the case. And the more we learn about Garcia, the more I think this was not just a a kind of narcissistic mass shooting like we saw in Columbine, being the the paradigm of. You know We're alienated from this school, and we're going to go out in a blaze of glory and get revenge against the jocks and the cheerleaders who oppressed us, something like that, where it was political in some way. It was kind of subpolitical. There's a, there a tinge of politics to it, but it, it was mostly theatrical and narcissistic. What seems to be suggested by what we learn about uh, Mauricio Garcia is that he was engaged in a kind of terrorism. He was engaged America. in a political act for a political end. Even if it were nihilistic and led to his own death, it was still trying to accomplish something or at the very least send a message. So once more research was done, we learned that that does seem to be the case that he seems to have been motivated by right wing politics and Of course, on Sunday on Twitter, you know i I, I mentioned that I saw that kind of shot in Freud, if that's the right term, regarding an immigrant killer. Uh, They then went to a different mode, which is, you know, why is the mainstream media claiming that this guy's a white supremacist? Look at him. He's Hispanic. How could he possibly be a white supremacist? And, you know, I I think a lot of that almost this, the conservatives are kind of obsessed with the idea of a narrative that's being put forward by the liberals And, and for good reason in many ways. I think, you know, all media is kind of storytelling, narrative making. Uh, but they they take it so far to the extent that it 's almost like there's there 's no reality here that this was some gang shooting over drugs, but because those mean old liberals hate conservatives so much they 're going to turn it they 're going to turn Garcia into a conservative or something. Well, the more and more we learn about Garcia, the more clear it becomes that he actually was motivated by this kind of ideology so i 'm just going to read a little bit. This is from a report in The New York Times. From today, after Texas mall shooting, searching for motive and grieving for children. Investigators trying to learn why a gunman fatally shot at least eight people at a Texas mall are examining a social media profile rife with hate-filled rants against women and black people that they believe belonged to the gunman. The profile, found on the social media site OKRU, matches the gunman's birthday and refers to a motel where he was staying before the shooting. The profile also includes language praising Hitler with references to neo-Nazi websites like the Daily Stormer. On Sunday afternoon, officials identified the gunman who was killed at the time, Marcio Garcia. The motive for the attack remains unclear. The police say he opened fire. Okay, that's enough. Once we dig even deeper, all of these hints and rumors seem to become corroborated. Um, This is from a Twitter account run by Alexander Reed Ross.
0: So this is why I'm so careful to try to do a show that to the extent it has an effect on people, it brings out something positive in them uh, and not something awful. There are a lot of unstable, unhappy, reactive people who want to go out in the blaze of glory, who want you know attention, who want to feel like they're at the very center of things, they want you know, the world you know paying paying them heed, and so they go out and do a lot of horrible, horrible things. And these people disproportionately spend a lot of time online. So, if you're going to do a show online, you got to take into consideration not just the accuracy of what you're saying, not just the truth of what you're saying, but what could the effect be on unstable people who might hear what you're saying.
4: He delved deep into the OK, are you account. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that site later. But uh, he says he was um, says this is according to the shooter himself says he was radicalized through reading American Renaissance and Vider, then meeting a white nationalist in the army. He was in the army, and he was actually discharged at some point for a mental illness. He laughs at the fact that non whites can be racist too
0: and yeah, Luke makes the point in the chat. Your show's probably the first show I found that didn't make me feel angry after watching, and uh Laponia said the same thing it 's the only show of its kind that he doesn't feel disgusted or hate himself after watching so I have moved steadily in this direction putting more and more thought more and more effort you know making more and more sacrifices to try to do a show that is not going to lead people you know in a negative direction and all this talk about oh we're in a civil war all right we got to go to battle against the left we you know got to take back our country we got to you know take over the the government we need to Know, save America for God and for traditional values, and bring back the the Constitution. And you know we have to stand up against the satanic evil pedophiles who have come to dominate the Democratic Party and all our elites. Right, this just has a really bad effect on people. So I notice, you know, almost every right wing show that I've tuned into, I feel worse afterwards. Right, I feel more anger. Right, I feel you know less effective i feel you know more fired up i feel more disgusted i feel more alienated from people who don't see the world i do and that's dysfunctional it's not adaptive it doesn't serve you and it is the host aggrandizing himself making money you know, getting status getting viewers by feeding the worst in people even someone like Dennis Prager, who's Mister Happiness, Mister God-Based Morality, Mister Ethical Monotheism, Mister Judaism, Mister You Know Fighting for Good Values, yet the net effect of his show on viewers is to leave them less effective, less happy, more angry, more dysfunctional, more alienated from family and friends who happen to have you know centrist or left-wing views on life. And it's just so easy to get engagement when you appeal primarily to anger and outrage. So, you know, I could I could play you some some video about you know the horrible things that the left is doing, right? I, you know, I enjoy I enjoy hate porn as much as the next guy. Here's here's some hate porn. With my
6: friends. Yes. Yeah. We love you, Queen! We love, love you, you, Queen! We're in your corner, and we've got you, and I will fuck anybody up who's, like, trying to fuck with anything with you guys. It's really, in all seriousness, there's so many things
3: that are hurting and really killing our kids, and we all know what I'm talking about right now. And it ain't no drag queen, because if you've ever seen a drag queen lip-sync for her life, yep. it only makes you happier, it only makes you love more, it makes you a better person. Fuck, if I could do a death drop right now, I would. But I would <laughs> probably, like, break my hip. But,
2: and i yeah. yeah.
0: yeah.
3: yeah. Listen, I want to uh, ask everybody out there, please, please support all the great organizations that are out there helping all of this nonsense going away like it should. All of these incredibly stupid policies. Bye! Bye! Bye. No more room for hate! Only
7: love... And love equals drag queens. Drag queens!
0: <laughs> so I'm not a huge fan of uh, transitioning. I'm not a huge fan of drag queens. But if I was, you know, in a in a community, a group, a twelve-step program, you know, filled with uh, drag queens, I would do my best to get along with them to the greatest extent possible. Right. i would not be hostile so i've been to many 12-step meetings where there's a trans person and other people would avoid that trans person in particular they did not want to have to hold hands with the trans person at the end of the meeting so it's traditional in a 12-step meeting we all hold hands and we say the serenity prayer or the third step prayer something like that and we say it together and then we say Uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it. All right. And I would, you know, I would often be the one holding hands with the trans person because no one else wants to hold hands with the trans person. So my philosophy is wherever you go, you're on the the bus, you're on the subway, you're in a 12-step group, you're at work, you're at synagogue, you're at church, you're walking down the street, you want to have the best possible relations with everyone. The flaming queer, the trans queen the antifa dude right i i just don't see the payoff in unnecessarily alienating people I, i've been to many 12-step programs not just for sex addiction i've also gone for uh relationships for financial matters for for debt for under earning uh just the whole panoply, you know adult children of uh, alcoholics uh al-anon all sorts of different programs so I would have the best possible relations with everyone, including you know some uh male to female trans who's grossly overweight and's got a big beard but is you know completely sure that they're now a woman and they're getting in touch with their feminine side and if we're you know seated next to each other on the bus or i I walking in the park and he's right next to me, I would have the best possible relations with that that person uh it it's not really my thing. It's it's something that uh is disturbing to me. But I still wanna have the best possible relations with everyone in all my interactions. It doesn't mean that I'm you know, I'm trying to maximize the amount of time that I spend with people who are disturbing, but as long as I don't think the person poses, you know, a physical risk to me, I, I want to you know, try try to get along with them. I don't wanna just uh you know, hate and oh, be, be disgusted there's got to be got to be a better way of life and that better way of life is trying to get along with everyone to the best extent possible
4: two adding gotcha it says he walked around with an it's okay to be white t-shirt and i could go on and on it actually gets uh, worse or more interesting depending on your perspective uh, he actually wrote a post claiming that he was inspired by libs of TikTok. that's of course this extremely popular Twitter account that basically posts videos, as the name implies, from TikTok. They're crazy leftists talking about gender and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, they also found a picture of the sh- apparently the shoot.
0: So, yeah, if I can't be civil, right, if I can't interact with someone and sometimes I can't, then I distance myself. But uh, that's fairly rare that I just feel like I'm going to lose control and be rude
4: now it's um his head is out of the photo so we can't be sure but it is a man that seemingly looks like them it's an hispanic male and he has a texas tattoo on his shoulder and then he also has kind of lightning bolt ss like tattoo and a swastika on his left pectoral it's actually quite reminiscent of a tattoo that is on the body of weave andrew algemeier uh, who has the same tattoo it's a tattoo that was made famous or infamous uh from the movie with edward norton american history x where he had that on his chest Uh, Again, according to his OKRU account, he was reading The Daily Stormer, so who knows what we can make of this. Now, there's some interesting questions that we can go into.
0: So when will we know that uh, Richard Spencer's genuinely turned the corner on being, you know, anti-social and destructive force in people's lives when he starts to try to make amends for the people he's hurt and the people he has misled? So he's got a lot of sharp commentary. Has he put much emphasis into making amends for the harm that he's done to people.
4: Um, first off, what one might be, what motivated him to do this or what really motivated him to enter into right-wing, extreme right ideology? Now, I think a lot of leftists and liberals assume that it is the books and websites and Twitter accounts and just, you know, easy answer-giving, hate-mongering ideology that creates these types of people so if we could may perhaps censor the web or curate content or at least debunk content that's coming from amran or vidair or uh you know the daily stormer much worse or crazy anonymous accounts etc russian troll farms we could just kind of censor this or at least debunk it we could prevent people from falling prey to this so it's a kind of prey and predator like dynamic in that mind now you could flip that around and say that people who are already mentally ill are attracted to extreme right positions. Um, actually, in his book, which I worked on and published, called "Spiteful Mutants," uh, Ed Dutton writes about this, and he actually does reach that second conclusion that you know, in previous times when we li- lived in much more conservative or authoritarian or even feudal societies, the way to upset the apple cart would be to be a radical, egalitarian, or social leveler, et cetera. And to a very large degree, that's still the case. You know, you think of the stereotype of the uh, alienated goth teenager who, you know, becomes a communist or something like that. But we live in a liberal society now. Uh, we have a political theology of effectively liberationist democracy and and personal autonomy and all the rest of it. All of the kind, the kind of dominant ideology that will ultimately give birth to things like uh transgenderism etc and in this type of environment if you are a psychopath then you are going to be more attracted to the far right that if you really want to lash out at the world then this is the way to do it i mean those
0: so the community that you create has a big effect on how people express their themselves including you know their their darkness or their psychopathy so for example in a traditional Orthodox Jewish community, someone who's nuts will you know walk around mumbling to or they'll you know compose their own Talmud all right uh other societies you know they'll get violent and and kill people, so it's the you know other societies they will you know cut their hair and in an you know an eccentric fashion or they will you know get up in in a park and you know orate about scripture. or or politics. So people on their own, right, separate from the community, separate from the herd, right, wanting to feel important, wanting to feel something, right? There are various ways you can do that. Society will you know create paths where people can act out. Now you can act out in a pro social or a neutral fashion, or you can act out in this, you know, dramatically antisocial vicious fashion. And our society has a great deal to do with you know where these people choose to go
4: kids who went on twitter and 4chan in, in 2016 and spread all these memes i mean what were they doing if not a kind of metaphorical school shooting and th- that's not to say that all of them are are dumb or crazy in, in a kind of obvious sense but you know you're you're lashing out online you are engaging in rhetoric that is so overheated it's you know gas chamber memes and death squad calls and all that kind of stuff, that what you're doing is is kind of consciously and actively attacking your neighbors and countrymen and, or at the very least other people on these forums. And so someone who has psychopathic traits is going to be attracted to that. Now, there actually is a study that involves around 500 people. It was actually cited by Ed Dutton in the book. It's by Jordan Moss and Peter O'Connor. You know, I, I don't think any study like this should be considered definitive. Um, most... <laughs> studies are wrong as it turns out and um uh you know this is one study but it it does suggest uh this is the title of the study the dark triad traits predict authoritarian political correctness and alt-right attitudes so what he's saying is that people who are part of the dark triad traits so that that is psychopathy narcissism and machiavellianism so people who are feel self or self-absorbed or feel extremely entitled or grandiose or people who who are truly psychopathic have no sense of empathy or no conscience Uh, or Machiavellian, people who are really willing to, uh, you know, harm others in order to get their way. People who are like that are much more likely attracted to authoritarianism.
0: So the chat says trolling is legal. And I remember when I would interview, you know, hundreds of porn stars and porn producers, one of the major points that they would always reiterate to me is that pornography is legal, therefore it is moral. But there is not such a connection Automatic between what is legal and what is moral. There's all sorts of antisocial, destructive, personally destructive, harmful, and hurtful to others uh, behavior that, yeah, perfectly legal, but also really bad for you and for people affected by you.
4: Mostly of the right, but also maybe of the left.
0: And trolling is such an extent. Like A therapist made this clear to me. Luke, when you offend people, you're hurting people when you troll people so they get upset you're hurting people right so many people i I know they you know one of their greatest pleasures is going online and trolling and and triggering people which is hurting people so getting into the habit of triggering and trolling people and you know getting great delight from causing emotional upset to people that doesn't just stay online you then are inevitably affected by what you're doing online this is the the dangerous perils of the E personality and you'll inevitably take that into your real life make inappropriate jokes at work get into trouble at work with your religious community with you know your wife's friends so whatever you do it has a reflexive effect back on you and the the taking you know delight in, in trolling and, you know, this is just my downtime, just, you know, blowing things off. All right. Depending on how vicious you get, all right, it uh can have, you know, considerable negative effect on you. So I'm looking at a post here on decoding the gurus, the Reddit, and a good question here. What are the parameters of problematic podcast platforming? Who is the marginal problematic if platformed person? So one of the most Common criticisms of live streaming and podcasting is the tendency for people like me to platform people with problematic views. So, what are the salient factors that determine whether the platforming of a person is problematic? So, here are some possible factors. One, how evil are their views? So, someone who says murder is great, right? That's more problematic the murder is not great. Uh, how potentially harmful are their views, such as don't get vaccinated is more harmful than the world is flat? how stupid are their views the world is flat is stupider than western civilization is under attack by the woke mob how potentially harmful the platforming is so being on joe rogan is potentially more harmful than being on my show so what would you consider to be the marginal case what are examples of prominent people or prominent views where their platform is right on the border border of problematic versus acceptable if we all agree that uh, platforming some actin- active, unrepentant terrorist murder is a problem and the platforming Stefan Curry from the Golden State Warriors is just fine. What are your edge cases? What makes them edge cases?
4: So you could say this Garcia character, I mean, he's almost by definition mentally ill and dysfunctional. I mean you you don't engage in a crime like he engaged in, which of course led to his bloody demise. If you aren't
0: Okay, so see this guy speaking on your screen right now, John Levine from the New York Post. He's the one who wrote the article about voter fraud through mail-in ballots, all right? He had this big exposé for the New York Post about how there's just massive amounts of voter fraud going on with mail-in balloting. But he just did one article and dropped it. And so this was the article that my interlocutor, who, who's the guy who co-hosted a podcast with Paul Gottfried? Uh, that bloke and I, we were discussing, we were debating voter fraud, and his main argument for voter fraud was this New York Post article by John Levine, right? And I said, if there was anything to john levine's article on voter fraud right that uh he would have done more than just you know one article about it so come on who's the who's the guy in florida no not patrick joseph cotto right so this was joseph cotto's you know main argument on behalf of voter fraud this article by that john levine you just looked at So john levine here confessions of a voter fraud i was a master at fixing mail-in ballots so there's i made the point if there's anything to this article he would have done a follow-up because you would become the hero of the republic you would be financially set for life right you'd have access to beautiful women to power to fame if you could just uh, provide factual foundation for allegations that there was massive voter fraud in the 2020 election so he, he instead john levine guy you were just looking at he just does this one-off article, and there's absolutely no evidence in this article except what someone told him. And I said, that's, that's really bad epistemics, right? So a top Democratic operative says voter fraud, especially with mail-in ballots, is no myth. He knows this because he's been doing it on a grand scale for decades. But the political insider spoke on condition of anonymity because he fears prosecution, said fraud is more the rule than the exception. So that's the only evidence, all right, that uh, the New York Post can come up with. We, we have no idea who this person is. The whistleblower whose identity, rap and long w- history working as a consultant to various campaigns was confirmed by the Post. How much do you really trust the New York Post to do any work here? Like, if this is accurate, if what the New York Post and that John Levine bloke you know, published here, he would have the most amazing story in American political history ever, right? He would go down in history, right? He would be in textbooks. He'd be on the front page of newspapers and magazines. He would be all over TV news. He would be a hero of the Republic if all he could do is simply substantiate his article. But he never did any substantiation. He never did any follow-ups, right? He he had a choice. He could be hero of the Republic or he could keep uh, cranking out know tabloid fodder and so i don't believe that he decided oh i don't want to be a hero of the republic he ran into a brick wall he just had absolutely no way to substantiate you know these reckless reckless charges and yet you know, if you want to believe it right if your desire to believe this is strong enough you will buy it oh my god new york post they've uh, vetted this they've uh, substantiated this New York Post very respectable publication we can believe this here's the evidence of massive fraud with the uh, mail-in ballots but there's no evidence behind it this article came and it went and everything this guy says in this article simply matches exactly with right-wing talking points so if someone is just simply matching your partisan political talking points right th- if they're solely telling you what you want to hear and they're providing no evidence beyond that, then their their uh, their accuracy is highly dubious, right? This is really poor epistemics, bro.
4: Truly mentally disturbed. He was kicked out of the army, apparently, for having some sort of mental illness. And thus, he is attracted to something that can allow him to lash out. There's a very interesting... Tidbit from
0: Elliot Blatt says, "Well, what about Lizzo and her daughter taping pizza boxes boxes over the windows of voter vote counting centers?" Well, you can come up with five thousand anecdotes. I don't know anything about this particular anecdote, but what I do know is that every red blooded male would like access to having sex with beautiful young women, and you would get such access if you became a hero of the republic and exposed massive amounts of voter fraud that changed the outcome of the 2020 election. So I don't know much, but I do know men like to have sex with beautiful women, and you'd get to have sex with beautiful women if you could substantiate the case that the 2020 election was stolen. And given that no man has been able to do that, I am pretty confident that uh, the voter fraud case remains completely unproven.
4: That was discovered by going through his uh, OKRU account. And he is, this is the one that was inspired by Libs of TikTok. He discusses talking with his teacher in chemistry. And he was shocked, you know, you're a chemistry teacher. What are you doing talking about politics or whatever? And uh, he actually said to her, when she said good morning to him one day, he said, final solution. And at one point he gave a Roman salute in front of her. And she was, of course, <laughs> horrified by this. And so, it, you know, becoming a Nazi in 2023 is kind of the equivalent of listening to heavy metal when you're a teenager or dressing like a goth or dropping acid or, or what happened.
0: So what will I do if uh, California spends tens of billions of dollars paying reparations to its black citizens? I will try to make choices that are in my best interests. So I don't know how much that would affect the quality of my life. But just because the California government does things that I disagree with, that I think are wrong, that I think are, you know mis- misspending our resources that is you know sending out the wrong incentives to people that doesn't mean i'm automatically going to leave any more than i'd you know leave a friendship just because you know, i think my friend is wrong about you know voter fraud or vaccines for covid et cetera. right so i would hope that i would make a sane calm calculated decision about what's in my best interest right now i love living in california and i love going back to australia on a regular basis so what i have is love 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 is all i need
4: it's a way of achieving rebellion and people who are already psychopathic are going to be attracted to things like that i think there might also be another element to this in terms of causation of a general a glacially slow but perceivable shift of hispanics to the right
0: and Elliot Blatt says, what about the large crowds coming out for Trump compared to the handful of slobbering, re- uh, um, <laughs> I don't think I can say the uh, slobbering, mentally disadvantaged people that would show up for Biden? Well, the number of crowds who would show up is a really poor predictor what happens at the ballot box. All right? And we know this from dozens of elections. I'm thinking about the 1975 Australian election where the large crowds would show up for the left-wing candidate, but the right-wing candidate won overwhelmingly. So crowd size for candidates just does not correlate with election returns. Is this the definition of mentally disturbed? Whether or not your views are acceptable to the public at large? So Antifa and communists not mentally disturbed? No. Here is the definition of mentally disturbed. Your mental faculties and psychological faculties don't enable you to effectively do what you want to do. So if my wrist works, my wrist is functional if my emotions work then i feel humiliated when i am humiliated i feel joy when i have reason to feel joy i feel content when i have reasons to feel content i feel fired up when i accurately and properly have reasons to feel fired up so that's mentally disturbed if you're not aligned your emotions and your psyche are not aligned with what's functional with you know what's adaptive so if i was on here just Know, laughing maniacally but right? it i don't think there'd be much downside to it unless people who are important to me were disturbed and then then separated themselves from me so what is disturbed it's when your psyche your emotions your psychological reactions are not attuned to reality and are not adaptive to helping you navigate your way through the world That's the same thing. You know, what does it mean to be physically disturbed? Right? If my wrist doesn't do what it's supposed to do, if my fingers don't wrap around this pen so that I can write, if my fingers don't enable me to type, if I can't, you know, swing from a tree branch and do a, you know, a couple of uh, pull-ups, then I'm not functioning as well as I was yesterday, and there's some disturbance in my functioning. So too, if I have an interaction with a friend on the street, and as a result of, you know, perfectly pleasant interaction, I go into some, you know, deep depression and I just curl up in a ball and I sob for hours. There's something, you know, disturbed about my emotional reaction. So mental health, physical health means, you know, are you doing what you need to do? Are you able to do, you know, what you were designed to do, like your fingers or your wrists or your arms or your legs or your your neck and your shoulders you're able to tilt your head back and tilt your head forward now is there freedom in your movement is there freedom in your psyche
4: and a sense by hispanics of being alienated and out of touch with culture so hispanics don't get the kind of special adoration say that African-Americans, yeah, they don't get affirmative action to the degree that African-Americans do. Uh, there's, they, You can see a little bit of this, but they, they don't get the kind of George Floyd treatment of, you know, some terrible events like the death of George Floyd being amplified to a point where this represents the sins of America, which we, we must purge through a BLM, a BLM protest, etc. And there, there certainly is a lot of anti-black racism among the Hispanic community. You can probably say that you can find anti-black racism in every community. And there's almost a way of you know th- th- this question of who am I, and you could see a Hispanic youth adopting a far right posture in this rather extreme and outlandish way. And what better way to express that you are white, or at the very least, you're anti-black and anti-woman, than to just go full Nazi on their ass? I think that has something to do with it.
0: Well, disavow man i had no idea how radical hispanic youth have have become i mean the pressure's everywhere it's like going right through you the fever's in the air i mean this is what rich is talking about yeah it's there but don't underestimate the power of a lifetime ahead right don't be hispanic youth be electric youth right the power you see the energy coming up coming on strong the future only belongs to the future itself and the future is electric youth not hispanic youth it's electric youth it's true you can't fight it live by it the next generation it's electric we've got the most time to make the world go round Oh, can you spare a dime so place your bet on our sound come back to town don't lose sight of potential mastermind remember when you were young electric youth feel the power you see the energy coming up coming on strong the future only belongs in the hands of itself And the future is electric youth. Bye-bye.